John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Welcome to War of the Rebellion, Stories of the Civil War. I am your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the regimental history of the 72nd Indiana Volunteer Infantry of the Mounted Lightning Brigade, written and compiled by B.F. McGee. Chapter 4 August 12th to August 18th, 1862 from Lafayette to Indianapolis. Camp Chris Miller. Attempts at drill. Making out muster rolls. Being mustered. Drawing pay, bounties, clothing, and guns. March to Union Depot. Night ride to Jeffersonville. While the ride from Lafayette to Indianapolis was devoid of incident, save the groups that gathered at the stations from which men had joined the regiment, to cheer them on their way, it was one of interest to us all, who had left our loved ones on that day whom we might never see again. The trip gave time for serious reflection and composure. The sun was more than an hour high when we arrived at Indianapolis, but we were marched and countermarched until sundown, when we were put on a piece of ground in the northwest part of the city, between the Lafayette Railroad Track and the canal, which we christened at once Camp Chris Miller. A permanent camp was subsequently made of the ground, called Carrington. The novelty and excitement of the first days of camp life had died away. The men were worn out with fatigue, disgusted with the day's work, and sadly out of humor. When they were told that it would be impossible to get rations for them that night, their cursing was not so loud as forcible. The prospect for a general stampede to the city to find food became more than probable. Adjutant Rice, with admirable tact, assured them he had done what he could, and plenty of rations would be in camp by morning, and prevailed on most of the men to lie down and go to sleep. Some refused to do so, and went into the city, imbibed bad whiskey, and came back in the night melodiously drunk. Just at daylight, we saw Jedediah Killen of Company I come into camp with chicken, which he had skinned, roasted, and ate without salt or bread, remarking as he did so, Uncle Sam has taken a contract to board me for three years, but is making a bad job of it so far. Early on the morning of the 13th, we drew rations, eat, laid off a regular camp, dug sinks, and went to regular soldiering. The officers applied themselves to tactics. Captain Samuel C. Kirkpatrick, Company G, was promoted to the majority of the regiment and ordered squad and company drill every day. During his first day at Indianapolis, 
some efforts were made at company drill, but they were generally failures. Drillings could be slobbered over or slighted, but a muster roll was a matter-of-fact piece of work, which would not get up into two rows endways. They were ordered to be made out immediately, for each company, and signed. Now comes the tug-of-war. It was found upon investigation that there were, perhaps on a fair average, less than three men in each company competent to this exacting work. Day and night, the laborious work went on. Many roles were spoiled, and had to be begin, and had to be begun, de novo. Some officers laboring over them for twenty-four or forty-eight hours. Almost turned gray, and many from that time forth would prefer to enter a hard battle, rather than make out a muster roll. All day of the 14th, and day and night of the 15th, even as late as the 16th, these rolls were wrought upon. They were finally done, and the companies ready for muster. The muster rolls were left long enough for us to assemble in a body and receive a flag made for the regiment by a lady ninety-three years of age, named Nancy Green of Waveland. The presentation speech was made by United States Senator Henry S. Lane, and was as magnificent as the flag was beautiful. Major Kirkpatrick responded. Senator Lane said he knew the regiment would never let this flag trail in the dust, and Major Kirkpatrick assured him that we never would. Let the reader follow us and see if that pledge was redeemed. The inspection of the men by the surgeons began on the 15th, and it was completed in the afternoon of the 16th. As the men had to strip to the skin, it was amusing what tricks some of the patriotic resorted to that they might hide some minor defect. All wanted to go. But in spite of every effort to pass, a few were rejected in each company, and in some as many as twelve to fifteen. The 16th and 17th were among the busiest days ever experienced by mortals. We were in line almost constantly for the 48 hours, with scarcely time to eat. On the afternoon of the 16th, we were mustered into the United States service by companies, by Colonel J.S. Simonson, for three years or during the war. Terms of service, $100 bounty, $25 down, and $75 at expiration of term of service, and pay one month in advance. We knew nothing then of the great straits to which the government was reduced to furnish this money, nor Herculean efforts of Governor Morton to enable the government to fulfill its obligations to Indiana soldiers. Sunday the 17th was, if possible, the busiest day we had yet seen, and was emphatically a day of drawing, but not of draw poker. We first drew wood to cook breakfast. Next, rations to cook. Next, we were drawn up in line early in the morning and drew our bounties. First, $25 from the government, and receipted for it. Next, $10 offered by the county, and receipted for it. Next, some of the companies drew local or township bounties, amounting in some cases to $10. Next, we drew our clothes, a complete outfit, dress coats, pants, shirts, socks, shoes, and caps, 
Next, knapsacks and haversacks, but no canteens. And just at sundown, we drew the most important draw of all. Our our Springfield rifles and accoutrements. We had not been off our feet twenty minutes that whole day, and when we were released, if we didn't draw down our throats an enormous supper, then someone has made a false record. We had been ordered to cook two days' rations on Saturday, the 16th, and to be ready to move on the morning of the 17th. But on account of the absolutely necessary duties above noticed, it had been impossible to get ready. The order was now repeated to cook supper and pack ready to move immediately. By the time supper was over, it was dark, but the work of packing went forward with determination. We were now soldiers, uniformed, armed and equipped, under orders to go to the front, although without ammunition. And we were ready. Having pulled on our new uniforms, we for the first time packed our knapsacks, and oh, what loads! It would make an old soldier... Smile the bark off a tree to see the variety shops we filled to carry in mid-August. We went into camp with good clothes on. We now had our uniforms, but we had no way to send our citizens' clothing home, and they were too good to throw away. So, of course, we would rather carry than to lose them. Let the sequel show whether we lost them. In regard to the clothing, we drew much might appropriately be said. Uncle Sam, in all cases, aimed to supply us with the very best clothes that could be procured, but he was not always successful in getting those made of the best material. All our clothes were designed to be made of wool, but the unprecedented demand for wool, necessitated by the vast amount of clothes to be made, soon exhausted the supply, and the price soon run up to $2 per pound a price so high as to induce unscrupulous manufacturers to mix in materials of much less value. And after the first year of our service, we got but few articles of clothing that were wholly of wool. Our dress coats and jackets, or roundabouts, were more nearly of pure wool and were the subjects of little complaint. Our cursy overcoats and pants contained a large percent of what we called horsehair. Our underclothes were of various materials and of various kinds and styles. Our first shirts, as analyzed and reported upon by the boys, were composed of two parts wool, one part lin bark, and one part hog hair. As we never saw one of them entirely worn out, we supposed they might have lasted to the end of the war. These shirts, like all the wise and bountiful productions of the god of battles, had many redeeming and compensating qualities. While they invariably took the skin off, a part of it, at least, of everyone who first attempted to wear them, they always kept the pores open and encouraged the freest perspiration, while they afforded a comfortable breeding place for the myriads of graybacks with which we sometimes unavoidably became infested, and which often frisked and played up and down between our shoulders like spring lambs in a meadow, and tickled us in every fiber. A few shrugs of the shoulders furnished all the scratching necessary, and in our efforts to rid ourselves of this pestiferous pest, they would bear almost any amount of scorching without danger of burning the shirt. 
Whether the supply of lindbark and hog hair ran entirely out, we know not. But this first outfit of this kind of shirts was all we ever drew. Our next shirts, from that on until the close of the war, were of a material that defies description. The most prominent feature of their makeup was their elasticity. They would stretch equal to the conscience of a Jew. But this also had its compensating features. After they had stretched till they reached to the wearer's heels, the lower end of them made capital gunslings, and upon cases of emergency, served as halters to bring in captured horses or to tether the pack mules. But the army sock was the institution among all our clothes. Its biography will never be written. One of the most prominent peculiarities, often after being worn a few hours, was to turn down over the shoe, flop around over the toe, and so expand and dilate as to be able to hold most anything from a spring chicken to a ham of meat, and by night were ready to be cut off, one end sewed up and used as forage sacks. Just as the street lamps were lit up, we were for the first time strapped on our new knapsacks, and began to move to the Union Depot to take cars. Like other green troops, we took the longest road to get there. Did somebody want to show what a fine body of men we were? Did the citizens want to see how soldiers looked by lamplight? Or did someone make a thoughtless mistake? This Indianapolis night march must be regarded as one of the most foolish and fatal we ever made. Straight down the railroad track, or by the nearest street, the distance was about three-quarters of a mile, and the march might have been made in fifteen minutes, and not have heeded or worn the men. It was eight o'clock when we started. We marched down by the state house, around the governor's circle, and through street after street till we finally halted at the depot at just eleven o'clock, having marched three hours. We were very tired when we started, and when we stopped, we were heated to the boiling point, our limbs weary and feet sore. We immediately took the train awaiting us, made up of coal, box flat, and cattle cars, just as the cattle had been taken out of them. It was our fortune to get into one of the cattle cars with about six inches of the droppings in it. This looked like it was intended to test our endurance and make soldiers of us in the least possible time. Many, not mild mill dams might have been heard. The cars soon moved at a lively rate. The road was very rough, and we bounced about like so many rubber balls, sometimes one on top of the other, and sometimes the other atop of one. In two hours we were shivering with chilliness, and we verily believe that night's ride was the cause of untold suffering and the death of many of its participants. The misery lasted until eight o'clock the next morning. Chapter 5 We will finish up next week let's get into some notes not a whole lot that we're gonna talk about but i think you all know about the one part that we need to talk about (laughs) oh my goodness all right let's get into these notes so first off that we're going to talk about is camp carrington now this was established in 1862 in indianapolis and it was named because of General Henry B. Carrington, 
Now, I wanted to find, once again, every time we talk about these camps, I wanted to find out where it is. It was located between, in Indianapolis, between the canal and Fall Creek, which is by 15th Street and Missouri Streets. So uh, if you are in Indianapolis, you kind of can zone in on where that's at. I looked it up on Google Maps. Pretty interesting spot. I can kind of see the difference of maybe how far some of those soldiers had to trek to get into downtown Indianapolis to go drinking, which makes sense. And, of course, soldiers kind of sneaking off to go get drunk. What else is new in the infantry? There's nothing to do. It's their favorite pastime when they get off work. So these guys are on a speed run on being soldiers. Now, the fact that they got their flag and how they got it, I think, is very touching and adorable. And I'm very interested to see if that flag ever touches the ground. And I am not aware and was not aware that towns and counties, maybe back east, you guys are probably more aware, but I'm not back east. I'm very limited to what I can visit and see when it comes to kind of the American Civil War and not being in driving distance of so many cool places. But I I find that very interesting that towns and counties also gave bounties. That's very interesting. I've only ever read or even talked about, which was just bounties that the federal government paid. So the fact that cities and counties did it as well is very unique. And in a way, I also got a bounty. I had a, a $3,000 signing bonus when I joined the Marines. Uncle Sam took it in taxes, and that was my first being like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not getting three grand. <laughs> oh, oh, man, that was a gut punch when that happened. All right. So let's talk about some clothing. To date, this is probably the best information we've had on clothes, I think, other than the 155th, talking about it uh, with their Zouave uniforms. I find this very interesting, and I wonder what these shirts that they talk about were made of that never wore out. They never went bad. He said they were Lindbark, hog hair, and wool. Normally, you hear about the other direction where the shirts just kind of disintegrate. So the fact that these lasted for so long and were apparently made of Brillo pads and rubbed their skin off. My goodness. One of the most nagging injuries I think that marching soldiers have is heat rashes. When your your skin can't sweat very well because maybe it's wet or there, there's something in the way. Clothing, body armor. Um, nowadays, I think when I was doing the marching stuff, I kind of noticed the, the same thing with kind of wearing the accoutrements and having the canteen and some of those things placed on the sides of your skin could become very painful and cause to sweat and rash. So I think it's kind of funny <laughs> that they had these shirts that did that to them first and that they didn't catch fire is very interesting that they could burn them. They could burn the shirts to kind of get rid of those gray backs. Very interesting. Where can we get some for scientific purposes? As I kind of, I, try, I looked around. I couldn't find anything. I mean, at least online. Maybe somebody knows a museum curator somewhere who has one. Maybe one of these has survived. And I love that he talks about the gray, the graybacks danced up and down the shoulders like spring lambs in a meadow. Does give some hilarious visuals, I think. And when he gets on to the next shirts that they get, which was 
that they would stretch equal to the conscience of a Jew. So to be honest, I don't know much about Jewish history in the United States. After looking up different resources, in the 20 years leading up to the American Civil War, with the large immigration waves that were happening at this time period from Central and Eastern Europe, think of the time frame, if you guys have seen the movie uh, Gangs of New York, this is that immigration wave we're talking about that's central to one of the themes in that. You know, it, it's a good movie. Watch it. it. Takes place during the American Civil War. Uh, well worth it if you haven't seen it. Some fantastic actors in there. But that's what my first thought of is when I read that. I was like, oh, no, here we go. So in the 1840s, there was about 15,000 Jews in the whole of the United States. By 1860, there's 150,000. So soldiers are probably seeing Jews for the first time in large numbers or encountering them in a kind of a day-to-day experience, or maybe not. I was reading a bunch. Now, the Library of Congress has a, a century of immigration from 1820 to 1924 from Haven to Home. I'm going to post that into the show notes. Go ahead and take a look, flip through it, a lot of really interesting information about the Jewish population in the United States. They also talk about the Americanization of Jews, trying to fit in and not try to be too different. Of course, we see that a lot with immigrants when they come to the United States. They want to leave their old names behind, kind of their own culture, and they kind of want to be American as fast as possible. This is a really good resource to read up on this history. I really, it was very informative. Either way, the mention, one of the things that they talk about is the anti-Jewish sentiment arose sharply during the war. That's a verbatim quote. So I'm going to include that in the show notes. Go ahead and take a look at it. It's got a lot of very interesting information, a lot of firsthand sources and stories. If you'd like to take a look at it, it's going to be down there for you to read. Now, I'm assuming that this anti-Jewish sentiment that they talk about at the Library of Congress website made its way into this history because of that because of the experience of these soldiers, or maybe not. but And I think a lot of folks who listen to this podcast are well aware of Grant's Order Number 11, which banned Jews in Kentucky and Mississippi and Tennessee. And of course, Abraham Lincoln slapped him and made him rescind it. But, you know, I think we can see the after effects in this book that stems from that, right? A little bit of bigotry just kind of seeps out. So anyway... Grant had to spend quite a a long time kind of making up for that in his political career. But I suppose it wouldn't be a real American book if we didn't have a little bit of bigotry in it in one form, fashion, or another. So I just wanted to set that aside. I will always read insults when people are talking about other people like this. Bigotry, I always try and read because I feel it's very important to the time frame. But I will still steer away from racial slurs because I don't want, you know, I don't want people to have racial slurs pop up in their everyday life without being warned about it. I just, I just don't want to have it in my podcast. So I usually skip over. I've done it a couple of times, but I want people to listen to my podcast and genuinely enjoy it and just not have a word that's offensive to them directly. Like, 
Hey, you're having a great morning. By the way, here's a word that you don't want to hear. Sorry to ruin your morning coffee. So that's why I keep it out. But insults like this, definitely going to keep them in so we can kind of take a look about where we are and how far we still have to go as a people. So, all right. Now that that's over, let's get back to the clothes and these shirts. Now, he says that these shirts could be used as slings and that they're super stretchy, but it's the socks I want. And where can I get a pair where he says the socks could turn down over the shoe and flop on the toe, and they could even use them as foraging sacks. And it's, an, it's really impressive that these socks were able to be so stretchy. Very interesting. I wonder what they were made out of and how they were capable of doing that. If someone's got any information on it, email me, please. Warofrebellion at gmail.com. Now, that the soldiers were forced to march three miles instead of the 15 minutes it would take to get where they needed to go. Oftentimes, three miles is a great introductory marching mileage to start at for new soldiers. I don't have any evidence that that's what happened. It could have just been incompetence, but I think that's probably what they were getting prepared for was doing their first marching. So, all right, friends, that's all I have for the notes. I hope you found it very interesting. I am going to post in the show notes. Uh, actually, I'm going to do Grant's order number 11. There's going to be a link to that. So you can read it and also uh, the Library of Congress's uh, site that I was just talking about. So with that, my friends, thank you for listening. Go ahead in the show notes and take a gander. And thanks for listening, Mush Eaters. And I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Old John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps, his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Hallelujah, or his soul is marching on.